0: Find out more by going to squared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, Sarah Isles Johnston, the author of the recent book, Gods and Mortals, will be telling us why the myths of ancient Greece still capture our imagination in the present day. Sarah Isles Johnston is a professor of classics at The Ohio State University, and much of her work looks at how narrative storytelling underpins belief systems and religions. This informs the basis of her latest book, Gods and Mortals, Ancient Greek Myths for Modern Readers. In conversation with Sarah today is fellow classicist Daisy Dunn. Let's join Daisy and Sarah now in conversation.
2: Sarah, your wonderful book has been published into what really feels like a renaissance of classical myth. Uh, there's a sort of a wonderful passage in your introduction in which you walk us through an ancient Greek city and you point out the various myths as they appear to us on temples and public buildings. And I was reading this passage and I was reminded of, of walking through a sort of a modern bookshop today or a public library because these ancient myths seem to be absolutely everywhere. Again, uh, you've chosen 140 of them to retell in your own words, and I wondered: um, did did the sort of the public appetite for these myths um, help shape your approach to retelling them?
3: Absolutely, um, inevitably. I I saw this happening, and I had always wanted to retell them, but I hadn't really had the final push, and that did it. But something else was happening that is sort of related to that. I studied the ways in which a variety of stories now come alive for us. So stories that we watch on television, novels that we read. And I was comparing that to the ways that I was finding that stories came alive for the ancient Greeks. So I was studying ancient Greek storytelling techniques, so to speak. And for example, I noticed that um, in antiquity, the myths were told episodically. And we know from studies of things like episodic television that Telling a story episodically makes the characters come alive better for the audience and builds a stronger bond. And, uh, I was also studying how story worlds are created. And that is the idea that maybe you're telling a bunch of smaller stories, but they are connected in certain ways. And well, Game of Thrones is a really good example Mm -hmm. of a story world. And that is certainly happening in the Greek myths. So. It was doing that scholarly work, too, that made me really want to try to tell the Greek myth in a way that would try to put to work what I had learned. One example of this would be um, in ancient Greece, people knew that Heracles was the great grandson of Perseus, and Perseus had been the one that killed Medusa. So if they heard a story about Heracles killing a monster, they would also be thinking in the back of their mind about Perseus killing the Gorgon. And they also knew that Heracles had released Theseus from the underworld. So if they heard a myth about Theseus, they'd think about Heracles. And they knew that Heracles had been an Argonaut. So Heracles knew Jason and Orpheus and Atalanta and all the other Argonauts. Uh, so when I wrote my book, I tried to do things such as uh, when I told one myth, include mentions of others with which I wanted it to be in dialogue or juxtapose myths next to one another so that they'd be in dialogue. And in that way, put to work what i had learned from studying the way that narratives work. I think that's really interesting because as you say,
2: we sort of see these things completely in isolation too much of the time. We kind of myth is actually a really, really fluid thing. And these stories flow into and out of each other, partly through the sort of the relationships between these people, these great sort of family trees, which are really difficult actually to keep hold of in your own mind. So I think that's one of the things I, I really love about your book. These sort of juxtapositions, as you say, of stories and the reflections that you get between them. And I wonder, I mean, when you were sort of, you must have been very, very mindful of the fact that people have been drawing on these myths for for centuries. Other than sort of the, the way that you arranged them, uh, was there a sort of specific thing that you were trying to do very, very differently from your predecessors? Or did you sort of consciously try and insert yourself into this tradition?
3: I should start by saying there is no single good way to tell myths. And what many of my predecessors have done, or for that matter, my, my contemporaries, because, of course, a lot of people are telling myths now. What a lot of other people have done is, are things that I really deeply admire. But the task that I set myself was twofold. One was, um, I've been a scholar of Greek myths for nearly 40 years, and I wanted to tell them true to the ancient sources. I wanted to tell stories that the ancient sources had actually told. But the other thing I wanted to do, which and here I have to say I, I didn't like everything Edith Hamilton did, I did not want to step into that role as a scholar when I was telling the myths. I did not want to interrupt the myths and say, and by the way, we can explain this by the fact that ancient people believed blah, blah, blah. Um, or this was a myth that was important to the Athenians. So I worked very hard to keep my scholarly voice out of it. Because whatever a myth is, uh, whatever work it's doing, First and foremost, it has to be a story, because unless it's a story, people aren't going to listen to it or they aren't going to read it. And if they don't listen to it, if they don't read it, any message it might be carrying, either for ancient people or for modern people, is simply going to fall absolutely flat. So, you know, those of you out there who read my book, you're going to be the ones who judge whether I've succeeded in telling the stories, as I hoped, in a vibrant engaging manner but at least i hope you'll see i i I didn't tell him as a scholar
2: i can certainly vouch for that i've enjoyed reading the book this week and i think so one thing you do really really well is to bring in some of the social history without being heavy-handed about it there aren't these sort of great digressions as you say of trying to explain things but as and when something comes up for example we'll be talking about later i'm sure references to to weaving you've got sort of uh descriptions of of what dyes people were actually using at that time and that kind of detail really helps to elevate the storytelling I think and bring it to life in a really novel way and on the one hand we could say that these stories have have never gone out of fashion people have been telling them for years and years and years and years and they've been prevalent in arts they've been prevalent in literature in music in opera you name it uh down the centuries I think sort of One of my particular favorite uh, elements is um, when you look at the paintings of the Venetian master Titian, and he's sort of picking up Ovid's metamorphoses and sort of painting episodes of these myths into these great canvases. I think these are wonderful. But at the same time, I think it has to be said that there seems to be a real focus on myth, a real sort of concentration of people turning back to these stories right now at this moment in time. And that seems really striking. It seems to be this way much more than it was sort of 10, 20 years ago. And I wonder, do you think that people are finding something in these stories that's otherwise lacking in their everyday modern lives?
3: Yeah, I do. And this is where my my other hat as a scholar of religion more generally, I think um, I'll, I'll put that on my head for the moment, it probably doesn't surprise anyone who's listening to hear me say that we live in an age that is increasingly one in which people identify as secular. And yet a number of scholars in the last 20 years or so have argued that one of the most enduring aspects of being human over the millennia has been a desire to think about what I'm going to call the unseen order. And the unseen order is a a nice term that is meant to encompass other terms that are specific to particular religions like God or, or gods or demons or angels or ifrits or banshees or heaven and hell or all of that kind of stuff. So the unseen order is sort of a collective term for that. And a lot of other really interesting research in the past 20 to 30 years has shown that as our world has become increasingly secular, people fulfill the desire to think about the unseen realm by consuming fantasy, either fantasy novels or or fantasy films. So, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Philip Pullman. And the last couple of decades have really seen a renaissance in um, that kind of stuff as well, both in uh, rebooting it in certain senses, you know, making movies out of Lord of the Rings or in new fantasy that has been generated and in fact, at the moment, the project I'm working on, um, the scholarly project I'm working on, is studying how modern supernatural horror fiction, which began in the middle 19th century at about the same time that Christianity begins to take a really steep decline in the Western world, supernatural horror fiction is really coming into its own. And so what I'm going to be arguing is that supernatural horror fiction like other forms of fantasy fiction is another way that we fulfill our desire to think about the unseen world. But important to everything I just was saying is that fantasy fiction gives us a kind of easy off ramp. Once we're done reading the book, we can close the cover. Once we're done watching the film, we can turn off the TV and we go back to our normal lives. Or so we think, I would argue that probably deep in our brains, we're still thinking about the unseen order is that piece of fiction presented it, but it's different from going to a church or a synagogue or a mosque where you leave the door after the service and you're supposed to be taking what you've experienced out into your daily life. So to get back to your question about myths, I think that myths are another way of experiencing the unseen order while remaining secular because almost every Greek myth is about some kind of interaction between humans and gods and what the gods are like and what the gods can do to humans and so similarly i think they can cue us to meditate on those big questions about the unseen order without again committing ourselves to actually believing in the existence of the greek gods or anything else that the myths might be implying exists out there
2: it's interesting as you say i mean one of the interesting statistics that actually came out of the recent census that was taken in the UK revealed that uh, the number of people who define themselves as having no religion has actually shot up. It's actually 37.2% now, which has gone up. It's a 12% increase uh, on a decade ago. So that's certainly you know, on, on the rise. And I think in your book, one of the things that actually made me smile is when you were comparing, so you mentioned Harry Potter how sort of interesting it would be if we are sort of walking around. And we don't have statues of Harry Potter in the way we would have religious statues and, you know, emblems or whatever of these characters. So it does make you question, I mean, how well do you really think myth fills sort of the void left by religion? You've you've said it's sort of, we can shut the door, we can shut shut it away. And that suggests it doesn't really kind of occupy our minds enough or our souls enough. Is there anything else that myth can really do for us?
3: Well, first I have to comment. Uh, one of my favorite cities in the world is Edinburgh. And so I've spent a fair amount of time walking around Edinburgh. And certainly since the advent of Harry Potter, you can feel like you're kind of on a, a religious passage <laughs> because there's all these different places in Edinburgh that either, either inspired uh, the stories or where... Um, Enterprising people have set up shops, which are meant to mimic the shops in Diagon Alley, etc. So it's part of answering the the question you just asked. I think um, by saying I think that even through fantasy fiction of other kinds, such as Harry Potter, we are um, doing something that is, in certain ways, similar to religion, but. Um, to get back to your question about to what degree we are experiencing on in an, in an active way nowadays, I think about what happened after Madeline Miller published Circe, her second novel, and in my opinion, the better of her two novels. I, I like very much both of them, but Circe to me is just absolutely incredible. And a group of my graduate students and my colleagues and I got together to talk about it after we'd read it. And the the experience that we had been having, and okay, you can say we're classicists, so of course we're going to have a more intense experience of that novel than normal people. But the experience that we had was just, for all of us, ground shaking. It had made an entire world come alive. You, you talked about how I discuss in one of my stories where ancient guys came from, and I spent actually a week doing research in order to accurately portray that in the story. When I read Circe, I am filled with awe at how much research Madeline Miller must have done. And because she did that research, experiencing that myth, at least, that, that novel based on a myth, um, at least, or based on a series of myths, I should say. I don't want to have, um, you know, Yahweh strike me with lightning when he hears me saying this. But to <laughs> me, that was somewhat like a religious experience. It was so real. So I don't know whether that helps answer your question or, or not.
2: It's fascinating. I hadn't sort of thought about it in, in that way. I mean, I guess we can say when you're reading a book, you can sometimes find something in it which really resonates deeply on a level which you can't really explain rationally. And I guess we could equate that to a religious experience.
3: I will add, I adopted a dog a year later and named her Circe. So, you know, the book lives on in my life. Uh, it ran deep. <laughs> it ran deep. <laughs> One of the questions, going back to what we
2: were saying um, a few moments ago about, so that this, I guess that's the relationship between between myth and religion more generally. I mean, one of the questions I'm asked, and I'm sure you're asked all the time, is did the Greeks really believe in their myths? And this really kind of cuts at the heart of this very, very complex relationship between myth and religion and the gods and how much of it was actually sort of relevant to people's everyday lives and not just stories, as we might say. Is there a way of tackling that question?
3: Well, I'll try. Um, I'm <laughs> yes. not sure there's ever a perfect answer because in any religion you study, understanding belief is really tricky because you have to listen to what people are telling you about what they believe, which is already you know a slightly defective way of getting at it, even if they're trying to be utterly honest. But here's the way I would... Approach answering the question for the Greeks. We tend to think about belief, even if we don't realize it, with reference to the religions that we know best in the contemporary Western world, which are all based on canonical works such as the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, the Quran. And these canonical books lay forth exactly what we're supposed to believe if we're a member of those religions. And those religions also have creeds or dogmas to which their worshipers are supposed to profess allegiance, such as um, the Nicene Creed. The Greeks, in contrast, assumed, and it didn't really bother them, they assumed that their knowledge of the divine world and what the divine world wanted was very incomplete and that it would always remain incomplete. And this is because goddesses called the muses who bestowed stories on poets, and then the poets would tell the stories to other people. And these were the stories about the gods and about the heroes that we now call myths. These, these goddesses called the muses, from which the myths come, were notoriously shifty. Mm-hmm. They straight out told the poet Hesiod, you know, sometimes we lie to people. And sure enough, one poet would say one thing about a particular myth, and another poet would say another thing. And that's how we end up, for example, with um, what I'll call the standard story of Helen, in which Helen is taken by Paris to Troy, and willingly or unwillingly, she's taken by Paris to Troy, and she's there for the whole Trojan War until her husband recovers her. But there was another story that said that didn't happen, that the gods... Um, kind of spirited Helen away to Egypt, where she could sit and be virtuous for the entire war. And they made this fake Helen that they allowed Paris to kidnap, and that fake Helen was the one at Troy. So you've got those two ideas out there about Helen at the same time. You can't really talk about belief under those circumstances in the same way that some observant Christians would talk about belief in the Gospels. I think it's better to say that the Greeks believed that the general picture that the myths give of what the gods could do and how the gods could affect humans was considered an accurate reflection of what had happened in an earlier stage of human existence, what Hesiod had called the age of heroes. When it came to the nitty gritty of whether Zeus had turned into a bull to rape Europa, or whether there had once been a minotaur, or whether Lycan had turned into a wolf, those specific myths are maybe up for grabs. You might doubt one of them or, or not. But the general picture they gave of what the gods could and did do was believed by the Greeks.
1: That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared.
2: It's really interesting. I guess sort of it all comes back to this gulf existing between the god and mortals and you mentioned Hesiod talking about these, he talks about these five ages of man and this age of heroes being sort of the fourth age where things, things have been going really badly. And then so and there's this great glorious age where you have the Iliad and you have sort of the story of the Trojan War and you have the golden fleece and the quest and all these wonderful things happening, which obviously provide other writers with a rich tre- tre- treasure trove uh, of, of material to draw on. But it all comes back to the separation between gods and mortals. And in this age of heroes, you have mortals really striving to be close to the gods, they're often descended from the gods, and they're trying to match the gods. And I think as a reader, a lot of the time you're thinking, well, what is the point? Look how flawed these gods are. You know, why would men want to be like them? At the same time, you have the gods then being closer to, to mankind than in this, the later Iron Age that Hesiod describes. And people are the gods, sort of really struggling to to comprehend. And they can kind of talk to them, but they can't truly understand what it is to be mortal. So that gap will always be there. So my point is: I mean, in your book, I was particularly struck by how central this this gap is between to, to so many of the myths. I'm, I'm thinking particularly on the myths you tell of uh, Demeter and Metanira, and what I'll call the burning baby. (laughs)
3: Could you at least date that a little bit? Yeah. So after the rape of Persephone, when her mother doesn't really know what's happened to Persephone, or at least doesn't know how to get her back, Demeter disguises herself as an old woman past the age of childbearing, Wanders the world and eventually she's invited to join the household of the royal family of a city called Eleusis. The they don't, they don't know who she is. Um, they think she's an old woman who needs a job. So they hire her as the nanny. And, um, eventually, uh, the mother met She wakes up in the middle of the night one night and she looks out from her bedroom into the central room where the hearth fire is. And she sees Demeter putting the baby boy into the fire. Now, Demeter's been doing this for weeks. And by doing it, she's been slowly burning away the baby's mortality so that the baby will be immortal. But of course, Metanera doesn't know that. She sees this old woman putting her baby in the fire and Metanera goes, oh, good boy, what are you doing to my little baby? And then Demeter really gets angry and she says, oh, you stupid mortal, you people never know what's good for you. I am Demeter, blah, 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 blah. And Demeter um, finishes this very angry speech by saying, I would have made your son immortal, but now you've ruined that. And Demeter stumps out of the house and the next stage in the story occurs. So, yeah, Metnera didn't understand who Demeter was, but Demeter didn't understand what it was to be human. and. Similarly, um, when Apollo builds his Delphic Oracle, he kidnaps a bunch of men to serve as its first priest. And the Oracle is really high up in the mountain. And so one of them kind of trembling says, but my Lord, how will we seat ourselves up here in this high and destitute place? And um Apollo in this kind of snippy way, or at least that's how I hear it when I read the poem, says don't be stupid. People are going to come worship me here and they're going to bring goats and other things to sacrifice and just take a knife in your right hand and kill all the goats you want and eat their meat. So Apollo has not appreciated either what it is to be human and the kinds of things that worry humans. And he's not very good at reassuring. He gives them an answer, but he's not all warm and cuddly, let's say. Can, can gods and mortals ever understand each other? Um, I'll tell you a story about where a god gets a pretty good dose of it. So Apollo falls in love with the Spartan prince Hyacinthus and it's, uh, his, his love is returned. But as in almost every story about Apollo loving someone, something goes wrong and Hyacinthus dies. And Apollo is devastated. And according to the ancient author Lucian, while Apollo is kind of moping around the halls of Olympus, his brother Hermes approaches him and says, why so glum? You know, what, what's the matter, Apollo? And Apollo says, oh, Hyacinthus died. And Hermes basically says, yeah, well, when you fell in love with the mortal Apollo, you were basically signing up for grief. So don't cry now. So on the one hand, we can say Hermes is really quite callous and rather unsympathetic, but it's a glimpse of a time when a a god, I think, does feel how a mortal would feel.
2: I guess the whole rarity of it is is what makes it so striking. Maybe thinks of in in the Iliad, as you were saying that has remembrance of that the passage where um, Aphrodite is actually wounded. You're thinking, oh my gosh, you've got an an immortal being wounded by a mortal's weapon. And those moments really stick with you because they are so few and far between.
3: Yeah. And also in the Iliad where Zeus knows that one of his favorite sons, Sarpedon is going to die. And mm-hmm. Zeus talks to Hera and says, do you think I could stop this? You know, could I prevent him from dying? And Hera says, no, you can't. Um, you have to let this keep going because that's part of the plan. But that's yeah. an insight into Zeus as a caring father that you don't very often get. I think I
2: mean, that stuff, it leads us to our, our, the title of this talk in a way, um, the title of our talk is What Greek Myths Can Teach Us About Events Beyond Our Control. I think that's probably a, a case in point, but I think maybe we should sort of try and dive into that question uh, a little bit more.
3: Um, yeah. So let me take the myth of Niobe to start with. Niobe boasts that her 14 children are um, absolutely wonderful better than Apollo and Artemis, the divine twins, the the children of Leto. So predictably, the god's punish her by killing her children and turning Niobe into a big rock that continually cries, even though it's a rock, it continually cries. So, you know, we can learn something from that if we choose about how to control things. Namely, don't be an idiot. Don't be arrogant. Don't say things that you know are going to get you into trouble. And that, Most of the myth books that children read, in fact, focus on myths like that because most children's myth books are trying to use the myths to convey a very clear message. And usually it's a message about behavior. You know, Daedalus and Icarus is another favorite in children's myth books Mm -hmm. that has a clear answer. Listen to what your parents say. But it's not long before we grow up and we find out that's not how life works. And I think myth reflects that too, that um, Io, for example, of a princess is raped by Zeus. And then, uh, Zeus sees his wife, Hera, coming and turns Io into a cow to hide her from Hera. But Hera's no idiot. And she, she soon sends a gadfly to chase Io, who's still a cow all over the world. It's a terribly arduous journey. And then finally, a little bit late, Zeus turns Io into a woman and she bears him a child. So Ayo suffers terribly for no reason, as far as we can see, that she could have avoided. So what you take away from that kind of depends on how you want to look at it. One thing you can say that I often say when I'm teaching the myth is, what an incredibly resilient woman. Look what she suffered and she survived and she came out of it um, okay in the end. But you can also say, wow, you know, the gods are horrible. Look what happened to this woman because of the way that the gods behaved, and she had no control over it, really. Um, and sometimes I think of it that way. You could even choose to understand it, though, as random misfortune, because there's a lot of beautiful women in ancient Greek myth. Io is the one who attracts Zeus's attention for whatever reason. Why, why her? Why did she have to suffer? So I would circle back to something I've gesture to a little bit already, that I think great myths offer us not so much answers um as opportunities to think about things, which I think is what all good stories do. We don't finish George Eliot's Middlemarch or Clara Keegan's Small Things Like These with absolute explanations about why bad things happen. We leave those stories and we leave Greek myths, or we should leave Greek myths with more tools to use to think about stuff.
2: I think I I, I agree with you on that. I think it feels, you mentioned sort of children's books in particular, it's always felt really strange to me that people should be looking to myths for kind of moral parables or examples of what to do. I think almost myths are there to show us what not to do uh, a lot of the time. Um, And it's just, it's sort of puzzling, but I think encouraging for the future of method people continue to look at them with some kind of expectation of being guided to something, whether it's towards right or towards wrong, or just sort of self-revelation uh, to some degree. And I think sort of on the the points of, sort of control, it's almost, I think, they seem to show us more often than not that things happen for no rhyme or reason whatsoever. There's sort of so many just arbitrary decisions by gods and goddesses. It seems quite random, as you said, like, why should she suffer? Because one god's just made a decision one day. And gods don't necessarily see through the full narrative of what's going to come. You know, they can put a spell on somebody, but they don't anticipate necessarily that I don't know, um, like the Minotaur is going to be born because Poseidon's put a spell on Persephone to fall in love with a bull. He doesn't necessarily know that she's then going to find a way to to mate with this bull and give birth to the Minotaur. Things kind of take on a life of their own beyond what the gods imagine they were in the first place. And I think with women, um, it's particularly interesting how many of these women become the focus of these big decisions. And I sort of wondered if sort of more broadly, it was always seems very, very strange to me that women have a much more prominent place in myth than they do in any of the, sort of, the written histories. We think of the works of Tacitus or Herodotus. Women are a lot more prominent in the myths than they are in histories. Do you have sort of, some theories as to why that might be?
3: Yeah, because it's myths. Uh, I think ancient men who were the primary consumers of myth, at least the, the literarily sophisticated myths, they loved thinking about powerful women for better and for worse. And usually it was worse. There's more dangerous or, or bad women in ancient myth than, than good women. So this was highly entertaining to them and probably also highly titillating. But they didn't want those women in their real lives. No one wanted to be married to Medea. They just liked to hear about Medea. And similarly, look what Odysseus does. Um, you know, if, if I were Odysseus... I'd say with Circe, that seems like a much more entertaining life. But an ancient man, of course, would have said, holy cow, the Odysseus go home to Penelope, who's smart and resourceful, but who is also going to know how to be a properly good wife. So I guess that's how I'd answer your question, that the stories are a way of exploring things safely that we do not want to explore in our real lives. But it's such a treat
2: for us to get all these really exciting women I mean, Medea might be completely sort of nuts in our books, but at the same time, I mean, what a wonderful character and what sort of wonderful speech that she's given on the back of that.
3: I agree. And that's why I actually asked my illustrator to put Medea on my cover and to show Medea in a pose where she was clearly the one in charge. She's putting the dragon to sleep. And Jason is standing in back of her looking not all that impressive. And I requested that too, because, yeah, I don't agree with Medea killing her children not advocating that. But I <laughs> admire her for um, the way she's portrayed as a scholar. She learns mm. about how various elements of the natural world work and how she can put them to use to do things like put the dragon to sleep. Now you've touched on the illustrations. Let's let's talk
2: about the illustrations because um, I happen to know your your son is an artist and he produced these fine illustrations which illustrate so many of the myths within the book. How did that collaboration come about and how how closely or how to how far apart were you did he see eye to eye uh, over sort of how you visualized the stories when you were writing them and um,
3: when he was drawing them he definitely saw eye to eye with me on Medea and Jason. He too thought that Jason was a dweeb and so he was very, yeah, it's a good <laughs> way for him. Yeah. Yeah. he was very happy to draw Jason that way. But <clears throat> I told him myths from the time he's now about to turn 41. I told him myths from the time he was very young. And he's heard me tell his children myths. So he's been immersed in these myths his entire life. And so I figured this would be a cakewalk. I've got an illustrator who I not only can, you know, threaten to cut out of my will if he doesn't do what I want, <laughs> but um, who surely sees these myths exactly like I do. But turned out that that wasn't the case? Um, and so we had to work out a deal where sometimes I would give in to him and sometimes he'd give in to me. He drew Hades, for example. There's a scene of Hades and Persephone and Orpheus is playing for them in the underworld. And Hades has, in, in my son's illustration, Hades has no irises to his eyeballs. And I said, you forgot to draw his irises. And Tristan said, no, I've always imagined that Hades doesn't have irises. And I said, what? And he said, that's just how I've always imagined him. And then he showed me. Um, there's a series of graphic novels called Watchmen and the kind of creepy characters in Watchmen also don't have irises. And he said, I think it's because I read Watchmen. Da, 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 da. So he had an explanation for this. I, I thought, okay, if that's how you imagine Hades, let's go with it. But on the other hand, when he drew Penelope and he put on her jewelry that I did not think was what the Queen of Ithaca would wear, I made him, um, redo the jewelry so that penelope looks the way i want her
2: to look you wouldn't want her wearing the sort of uh you know the the schliemann you know giving the great jewelry to his girlfriend at the time and the wonderfuls of gold you can't really see penelope wearing that
3: no but he had her wearing what i would associate more with um a less sophisticated culture it was more like uh simple beads so i made him dress her up a bit but you must know what I'm talking about, Daisy, because your mother drew the illustration on the cover of one of your books.
2: She, she did. We, we discovered uh, this sort of amazing coincidence. I did uh, an anthology uh, of, of stories in translation, and my mother illustrated the cover. And it was a sort of similar process where we sit down and have the discussion as to how you visualize myth. And I think you realize when you have that conversation that everyone does have their own sort of private myth. And that kind of comes back to what we're saying about how malleable... These stories are. I mean the pictures in my head probably actually were echoed quite closely maybe because I grew up with similar ideas So my mum my encouraged me to reading mythical books when I was a child and I think some of that goes into your head and you end up sort of seeing them in a similar way. Um, but at the same time they are just so adaptable and that possibly explains why they have such longevity these myths. So I think it's almost a shame, I mean, it's completely impractical in our society uh, the idea that you know we you can't sort of go plagiarizing each other's ideas, but the idea of plagiarism is completely alien to the to the Greeks with their myths, and that's partly why they've been able to to be perpetuated, so many people have been able to pick them up and change them and talk about them and illustrate them in their own way so it's one of those sort of magical things I think of of Greek myth more generally. I agree. I think there's time for just one more question um someone has asked. Here in Britain, there is a continual revival of the Greek myths in the form of retellings, for example, Stephen Fry's mythos, literary reworkings, you've mentioned Madeleine Miller's *Circe*, and performances of tragedy, for example, Medea is about to open in London. Is there a similar fascination for Greek myth in American culture?
3: I don't think it's as quite intense as it is in England. Um... The other thing I would say, which I find very interesting, is that in America, there is a lot of retelling of Greek myth to reflect upon, um, the experience of enslaved people. For example, the playwright Rita Dove has redone Greek tragedies, such as the Oedipus tragedy, into her own compositions where certainly this is still the Oedipus story, recognizably, but she's using it to reflect upon the plight of, um, you know, the American slaves. And similarly, uh, other playwrights have done the same and other poets, American poets have done the same. And what I think is very welcome is not only that that is happening, but that also American scholars are increasingly paying attention to it. My colleague at Ohio State, Tom Hawkins, is an expert on this. And right now he's working on how the classics were received in Haiti at the time of approximately the Haitian Revolution. And I've got some younger colleagues, too, who are, are working on related fields. So there's this this different interest or this this new influx of a different kind of interest in myths in America at the moment. It's brilliant
2: to hear. And that's definitely what keeps our subject thriving. So really good. I think we're going to wrap it up there. Um, my thanks to Sarah R. Johnston, to our audience. And to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, Daisy. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. Me too. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback about what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our in-person events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.